Well, Father, this Thanksgiving week, we would pause and bow our heads together as a congregation and say thank you to you for your careful watch over your children. You've been good to us this year. We've been abundantly blessed. There are those who are struggling and have needs, but Father, just help us to turn our face towards you. Help us to be a grateful people. Thank you most of all, Lord, for the great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and its life-transforming power. Thank you for our Bibles now as we take them and we study together and we learn and we apply your truths to our lives that we would walk in a way pleasing to you in obedience and careful surrender before you. So use your word as you often do to encourage us, to convict us and to strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're a funny people, aren't we? We will sit down to a table well prepared with food. We will bow our heads, we will pray, and we will say, thank you, Lord, for this meal. And then, as the food is being passed and we're loading our plates, we will complain about the food. (laughs) Don't we? We will open our closet doors And we will have every hanger filled and clothes folded in stacks and the closet is jammed and we will look at it and we will say, I don't have a thing to wear. (laughs) Or we will look at our racks of shoes, and this includes some guys, I think, even. And there will be 49 pairs of shoes and not one matches the outfit. We have really been blessed, haven't we, by and large, as a people? We are, in many ways, a very wealthy culture, and you know that. I know that there have been days where some people have struggled, and some of you have been without work, and the money has been tight, but undeniably, we live very affluent lives, don't we? Uh, Often, not all the time, but often, when we feel financial stress, it has much more to do with a value system and life choices and mismanagement than it does God not meeting our needs, doesn't it? And for many of us, the most difficult day we have is when the cable doesn't work right. And we can really gripe and complain, can't we? I've been a little worried about myself in this area, and I thought that it was very appropriate for us to pause in our First Timothy series and this Sunday going into Thanksgiving where many of us, if not most or all, will gather with family and friends, loved ones, and we will feast and we will watch football and we will be together and it is a great holiday time. Many of you men will be hunting tomorrow. Many of you women will be hunting Friday morning and um, so it's a big hunting week as well. And I thought that it would not be inappropriate for us to just focus on this matter of being a thankful people. Do you know that um, in our New Testament, as well as our Old Testament, but in our New Testament, we are directly commanded to be thankful people? That there really is, it really is a matter of obedience And it is something that we need to pay attention to. And isn't it interesting that we, an affluent people, are perhaps as mumbly, grumbly, complaining as any people that have ever lived. 
I invite you this morning to turn to our Old Testament uh, before we apply some New Testament principles. I want us to spend the balance of our time for our text this morning in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, excuse me, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is an amazing story, and I think that you will find it very challenging. We'll dig in in just a minute. Our Bibles have a lot to say about thanksgiving, being thankful, about God's people being a thankful people. We have many stories that we can look at. We have the Old Testament story of how God's people, the children of Israel, marched around the wilderness after they had the great exodus out of Egypt and and they were thirsty and they were hungry and then God provided manna, God provided quail and then what did they do about God's provision? They complained and grumbled. I'm thinking about the story in the New Testament in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. You don't need to turn there. If you've been around Sunday school very long, you know this story very well. Jesus encounters these ten men who have leprosy. Remember that story, the ten lepers? Leprosy of the New Testament time was the HIV of our day. It's the, it was even worse in that it was a very public thing. It was a a skin disease where your fingertips, your nose, your ears, your skin literally disintegrated and fell apart. You would lose parts of your flesh. It was fatal and it was incurable and it was highly contagious. And if you had leprosy, it was essentially the end of the rest of your life. You were expelled from community, you had to make your way outside of your town and your people group, your living area, your family, your loved ones, if, if they could, would bring you food and set it down. They would leave and go back so that you could come pick up the food so that they weren't in your range. It was lawful that lepers had to cry out if anybody came near. They had to cry out that they were lepers. Unclean! Unclean! They had to cry out. It was a bane. It was horrible. And Jesus encounters these ten lepers. He heals them. According to Levitical law, they had to run to the priest and the priest had to examine them and, and, and give kind of the official stamp that they were indeed cured and healed and that they could then re-enter society. I take it, the story doesn't tell us, but I take it that fingers that were gone, noses that were eaten away, lips that were falling off, were instantly restored. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? By the way, leprosy in the, old, in the Bible, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, is often, often a type of sin, a type for sin. Spiritually, we're lepers, aren't we? Spiritually, we're unclean. And just like Jesus walked by one day and ten men were there and he healed them, he made them whole. Some of you have testimonies, don't you? On the spiritual level, I'm unclean, I'm dirty, I'm rotten. And one day Jesus interrupts your life and he makes you clean and you now have a new story. You're now productive at a whole new level. The old is gone, the new has come. We've been talking about that in 1 Timothy a little bit, haven't we? Do you remember in that story in Luke 17? Jesus heals them and what happens? Nine of them go running as fast as they can to the priest. Get Get looked over to go home. One, one foreigner, one Samaritan comes back 
not even his own people, but the one comes back and he falls on his face before the Lord Jesus and he said, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. That's about the right statistic, wouldn't you say? 90% of us are pretty much ingrates most of the time. About 10% of the time we're grateful at a level that is worthy of God's people who are blessed beyond measure spiritually and materially. We have in our Old Testament, as we open our Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 20, one of the great classic stories of the Old Testament. You may have overlooked it along the line. It's not quite as popular as the great stories of like a David and Goliath. You know how every once in a while you just need to revisit those stories. You just need to remind yourself of God's great power. And in fact, we're commanded to do that in Psalm 78. It even tells us, regularly repeat the stories of the past and teach the next generation so that they will praise the Lord for all of His wondrous deeds. It's biblical to look to these models, to celebrate what God has done and to teach our children, this is what God does. This is how God does it. We need to praise the Lord together. It's a Thanksgiving story. It's about a king named Jehoshaphat. It's a great story, but before we jump into the text, um, let's have a little bit of a Sunday school lesson here from the pulpit, all right? And uh, maybe you'll find it helpful. This is history, Chronicles. That's not a guy's name. Chronicles means they wrote stuff down. It's a history book, First and Second Chronicles. They chronicled what happened to them. You got it? Like the Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, yeah, okay. I thought Chronicle was a prophet or something. No, he wrote down history. It's a history book. And most of you know a little bit of history of Israel. And I think that if I remind you of what you do know, I can add to it and you'll understand exactly where Jehoshaphat fits in. And it's actually kind of interesting. But you remember that uh, God's people became very dissatisfied, didn't they? With being led by God himself. Think about that. Think about that. Remember when God led Israel out of Egypt and they were a nation and they went into Canaan and they set up their land. God had his prophets. Through his prophets, he revealed his word to the people, but they were, in essence, a theocracy. They weren't a democracy, okay? They were a theocracy. That is, Theo, God, led them, and he would tell the prophets what to tell the people. And so guys like Moses and others would just say, this is what we're doing. This is what God says. God said, do this. So they would do it, and God took care of them. Can't beat it, can you? But as God's people so often do, what did they do? They looked around at their pagan neighbors, and they said to themselves, I'd really like to be like them. Do you have that problem? You know, God's people are supposed to be distinct. God's people are supposed to be different than everybody else. God's people are not supposed to make sense to the rest of the world. In fact, I worry about us when we look so much like the rest of the world. It's like, what aren't we doing? Why would we, God's people, look like the rest of the world? And so that's what they did. They grumbled and they said, we need a king. And so God raised up a king for Israel. He told them not to do it. He said, uh, if, you, if you have a king, he's going to tax you. They didn't have any taxation in the land. How's that? That's better than 999. Okay? I mean, no taxes. And he said, oh, something else he's going to do. He's going to send your sons off to war. He's going to put armies together. See, God had been fighting their battles pretty much up to then. 
You know, they like blew trumpets and walls fell down. Stuff like that. Said, it's going to tax you. It's going to send your soldiers off to war. Forget what else he said he was going to do. Marry your daughters or something. Anyway, he's just going to mess with you. You don't need this. No, we want a king. They want a king. So they get a king. You know, remember what his name was? Head and shoulders, taller than everybody else. The first king of Israel was Saul, okay? Saul. So Saul starts out good and turns bad. He had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan had a best friend named David. You know these stories, right? And David gets called into Saul's court to play his harp. He's the shepherd boy who wrote music. We have all the words. We don't have the sound. We have the music recorded for us. That's our book of Psalms. David's sitting around writing psalms to the Lord. Songs. That's what psalms means. Okay? And Saul is so vexed by demons and by depression and, and, uh, and by his sinful life, I believe that part of his whole problem was the fact that he knew he was sitting, sinning and he was willfully disobeying God and he lived with such contradiction inside himself that he went out of his mind, basically. One day, David's even playing his harp and Saul's so vexed he does, throws his spear at the young guy. It's like, I don't like this job anymore, David says. God anoints David then king. Remember, David replaces Saul because of Saul's disobedience. And so here we have Israel, King Saul, then David. Saul chases David around the wilderness for about 10 years till David finally gets established in his kingdom. Israel is united. They're under David. They conquested most of what they were supposed to. And then David had a son named Solomon, remember, through Bathsheba and all that? And Solomon becomes the next king. Now listen to me. That's it for the nation of Israel for about 120 years. Saul, David, Solomon, and they're basically a united kingdom. It lasted about 120 years, this united kingdom. Three kings. Guess what happened after that? Civil war sets in. Do you remember that Israel was made up of the 12 tribes? Okay? And the, the 12 sons of Jacob were made up the, the land? Ten of them split off, and they're the north. And that's Israel. That's easy to remember, isn't it? Israel. Ten tribes go north. They're the northern part, and they fight with the south. The south is called Judah, and it was just two tribes. And each of those then start having kings. For the next about uh, 200 years, together, the nations combined together have 38 different kings. Those are all the, old, the guys in the Old Testament that are hard to pronounce. A lot of the kings that you read about. 38 kings for the next, for the next 200 years. They're divided. North, south. Okay? Here's what you need to remember. Israel's north. Ten tribes, all wicked kings. There were 38 kings and one queen that ruled during that time between the two. North, all wicked, all wicked. South, some good kings once in a while. The best of the bunch, a young boy named Josiah, remember? Age eight, age eight becomes the king. He was the best of the bunch. A pretty good one, though, was a guy named Asa. Asa has a son. His name is... Jehoshaphat. Asa rules for 41 years. He has a son named Jehoshaphat. He rules for 25 years. This is in the south. They're all wicked kings in the north. Are you with me? In the south, 
Asa for 41 years, then Jehoshaphat for 25 years, 66 years of pretty good, basically God-fearing kings. They make dumb decisions once in a while, but by and large, they live for the Lord. Okay? While Jehoshaphat, when Asa dies and Jehoshaphat becomes king in the south, Jehoshaphat's the king, I want to go back to the north and guess who's the king up here? Because you're going to know this guy. You especially know his wife. His name is Ahab. And he has a wicked queen wife named Jezebel. Who's God's prophet that's speaking for the Lord at this time in the north? Elijah. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's what's going on. This is 850 B.C. Okay, about 850 B.C. So we've had Saul. We've had David. We've had Solomon. We've had civil war. Ten tribes to the north, all wicked kings. Two tribes to the south, Judah, Israel to the north, all wicked kings. Two tribes to the south, some pretty good kings. For 66 years, they have pretty good leadership with just Asa and Jehoshaphat out of the bunch. All right? Josiah is going to come farther down. The word of God is going to be lost. Josiah is going to find it in the, in the rubble and stuff. Ahab's up here. Guess what just happened? In chapter 19 of 2 Chronicles, one of the dumber decisions that Jehoshaphat made that he got out of, God preserved him, but Ahab, the wicked king in the north, called on Jehoshaphat, the good king in the south, and said, come fight the enemies with me. They went off the battle together in an alliance that Jehoshaphat should have never made. But during that battle... So this is during Jehoshaphat's kingdom. It's the end of Ahab's kingdom. Ahab is out in the battlefield in a chariot, and an archer at random is just flinging arrows out across the battlefield, and an arrow hits King Ahab in the back in the chinks between his armor, accidentally. Just, just happened. Under the sovereign watch of God, that arrow went right where it was supposed to go. That night, Ahab dies. Jehoshaphat gets out of it. The Lord preserved him. He had to cry out to the Lord, and he turned the army away from killing him. He gets back home, and that's where we are in chapter 20. Did you follow all that? It's amazing history. It really is. Chapter 20, Jehoshaphat, this good king, got out by the skin of his teeth in this bad alliance with Ahab. Ahab's now dead. The the northern Israelite ten tribes are going to come up with another lousy king. Remember a guy named Jehu's going to run over Jezebel with his chariots when they throw her off the wall? These people are brutal. But now we're back in the south with Jehoshaphat. And here we are in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And this is a most remarkable story. We're going to break it down as we go. You may want to jot down some of these thoughts. Our points are basically one-word points as we break down the story. And let's see what happens. First of all, 2 Chronicles chapter 1, 20, after this, the after this is after Jehoshaphat got home from Ahab getting killed on the battlefield and getting out of that mess, things settled down, and then after that, this is the next thing recorded. The Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Meunites, that's not to be confused with Mennonites, Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. So the first thing we have in the story is point number one, and it is a problem. We have a problem. Jehoshaphat has a huge problem. He's got the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the people of Edom surrounding him and coming in upon him and they want to wipe him out and they don't want to negotiate a peace. 
They want to come in and they want to rape and they want to pillage and they want to kill and they want to burn and they want to salt the land. They want to wipe them out. This is a problem. He knows he can do nothing against the size of this force. So think about it. You're the king. You've got a small nation. You've got surrounding wicked nations that are coming to wipe you out. That's a problem. That's a problem. Not having shoes to match your outfit, that's not really a problem. By the way, before we move on from verse 1, just notice the Moabites and the Ammonites. It'll be of interest to you maybe to reflect back on Genesis chapter 19 and remember when Lot moved into Sodom and God told him to get out of Sodom because he's going to destroy Sodom because of their great wickedness and he moves, his wife turns around and looks, turns into a pillar of salt. He heads up into the mountains. He's got two grown daughters. Remember he had offered them to the men of Sodom in change for his male guests. They wanted the men. They wanted male instead of female. They were so perverted and sinful. He takes his two adult daughters up into a cave. He gets drunk. They get him drunk because they think they're not going to have any children. They get their father drunk and the two daughters each get pregnant by their own father. And their descendants are the Moabites and the Ammonites. You think your sin doesn't last? You think the dominoes can't fall? You think decisions made way back there don't sometimes hurt people way down here? I'll tell you something. When you step back and think about it, there is not one good thing about sin. It's really not that fun when you stop and see the big picture. Bad decisions, here they are. The Moabites and the Ammonites attacking God's people and really their blood relatives. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, verse 2, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazan Tamar, that is En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. The second thing I want you to see is that they don't not only have a problem, but they're at borderline panic time. It's number two, it's panic time. This isn't a nation that's clear over in China coming. This is people who are on our soil. These people are in our backyard. They are here. They're in striking range. What are you going to do, Jehoshaphat? What are you going to do? Now, I want you to see what Jehoshaphat does. He does not panic when he could have and probably should have, humanly speaking. His problem, the point of panic, but verse 3, alarm, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. That's an incredible picture, isn't it? The word is around, the headlines are such that we're going to be under attack. We're just days away from an imminent wipeout attack. We can do nothing. Instead of calling all the farmers to sharpen their pitchforks, get their 22 squirrel rifles and entrench and do everything we can to fight to the death, Jehoshaphat calls a huge prayer meeting. And he says, let's get together, everybody. They bring the men, they bring the women, they bring the children, and they gather at the temple. And the third thing we want to see is that they prayed. Jehoshaphat goes to prayer. Look what he says. The people of Judah, verse 4 again, came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at, at, the new, at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard. And this is what he says. I want to give you four subpoints under number three. Jehoshaphat prays four subpoints about prayer and what it brings. Notice what prayer brings to Jehoshaphat. 
Letter A, I want you to see that, first of all, it brings perspective. Jehoshaphat prays. Let's look at his prayer, verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it, and they have built it in a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or the plague of famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Jehoshaphat begins to pray, and the first thing he does is he reminds himself in prayer before the Lord of God's great power. The first thing this prayer brings to Jehoshaphat and to the people as they watch, just imagine standing there. Jehoshaphat, I assume, is praying out loud. And they get a perspective. Notice that what has happened when he begins to pray, his perspective is such that he moves off of the problem and he is now fixing his eyes on the Lord. Shift in perspective. We have a God who is powerful. We have a problem that is overwhelming, but I have a God who is powerful powerful. The second part of his prayer, I want you to see that the prayer heightened the awareness of the people and Jehoshaphat, it heightened their awareness of the presence of God. Not only did he remind God of his great power, he then notice in verse 9, reminds him of a promise from the past that when these judgments would come, whether they would be sword, plague, or famine, that we will stand in your presence. We are in the presence of the Lord. When he prays, he is reminded of the presence of God. I am not alone. People, we're not alone. We have a huge problem, but we have a powerful God. Let's shift our perspective from the problem to our powerful God. Let's remind ourselves that we're not here alone. We're in the presence of the Lord. Notice he goes on in verse 10. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Bible students believe these Mount Seir guys were probably Arabian who had allied with the sons of Lot, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade. And when they came from Egypt, so they turned away from them and did not destroy them. So when Moses brought the children of Israel through the wilderness, they encountered these Edomites and these Arabians, and God said, don't mess with them, leave them alone. I don't don't want you to take them out. And now they're not returning the favor, and so God, Jehoshaphat is reminding and appealing to God's sense of justice. See verse 11, how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army who is attacking us. The the third thing about Jehoshaphat's prayer is that it brings into focus the power of God. It's an, it's an adjustment of perspective. It is an awareness of his present, presence. And it is a focus on God's power. God, let me tell you something. You, know, you don't tell God anything he doesn't already know. You know that. But when you're in prayer, you do that all the time, don't you? And Jehoshaphat does that. Lord, let me remind you of some things that happen in case it's fuzzing over. Can't happen. 
But then I also want to tell you something, Lord, in case you just aren't thinking right this minute. We have no power. We can't handle this. We are done in. This is it. It's over. The ditch is too deep. We can't get out. We're stuck. We are powerless. And so as he prays, his own powerlessness helps him to focus on what? On the power of God. That's what prayer does, doesn't it? He goes on and he concludes his prayer by saying the final sentence of verse 12, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. The fourth thing that, the prayer, that his prayer did was it invited the peace of God into their lives. It invited God's peace. Think about it. Here we are. The dust is on the horizon of the approaching army that is going to rape our wives, murder our children, burn our barns, slaughter our livestock, torture and kill us. Stack up our heads like cannonballs. It is over. I'll tell you what I'm going to do right now. Everybody stand still. Everybody get your eyes off them and let's adjust our perspective and let's turn to God. And then let's remind ourselves that God is with us He is totally aware of what's happening. Let's remind ourselves that he is a powerful God and that we are powerless. And then let's just let his peace come over us. It reminds you of Philippians 4 a little bit. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. (laughs) It kind of fits what's going on next because it's almost dumb the way it sounds. Okay, so we have our problem, we have our point of panic, but Jehoshaphat turns to prayer. We've pointed out four things about that prayer. Let's go back to our running story here with our other points. Number four, the next key character in the story, number four, is the prophet. The prophet. He's going to speak the words of God. Look what he says, verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. This was a corporate thing. The adults did not hide the reality of what was happening from their children. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and a descendant of Asaph. Asaph wrote a bunch of psalms that are in our Bible as he stood in the assembly. So the prophet is going to speak. This is God's man is going to speak. Essentially what they're saying is we're going to open our Bibles now and we're going to hear from God. Only they didn't have a Bible to open, they had the man of God who was going to speak the word of God to them directly. We don't do that now. The word of God is complete, and so we open our Bibles. All right? So the dust is on the horizon of this problem that's overwhelming me. I'm ready to get flushed. It's all over. And so basically, I better get still before the Lord, adjust my perspective, and then I better open my Bible, and I better figure out what God says to me. And that's what they're doing. The prophet is going to speak. Look what he says. It's, it's almost laughable. Then the Spirit of God of the Lord, verse 14, came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, verse 15. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of his vast army, for the battle is not yours, but it's God's. Now, what a good word, but man, it's like, okay, how do I process this? 
My life is imploding. Everything is wrong. I can't fix it. I'm powerless. You sit down across from the counselor and he looks at you and he says, hey, don't worry. It's not your problem. It's God's problem. Okay? Write your check and leave. I mean, it's a good word, but, but what? You either believe it or you don't. You either believe it and know that you're God's child in the palm of his hand and that he's a God of might and power and that he, that he controls the just and the unjust and he has rulership over all things. And uh, Jehaziel says, I have a word from the Lord and it is this, this battle isn't yours, it's God's battle. Wow. Jehoshaphat believes him. Notice what happens. Do not be afraid, verse 15, or be discouraged because of this vast army. The battle is not yours, but it's God. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing by the pass of Ziz. I like that name. The pass of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Woo! What a good word from God. What a good word from God. I don't have to fight this. I don't have to go to court. I don't have to load my gun. I don't have to hide in the basement. I don't have to leave. I don't have to go home to my mom's house. It's not my battle. It's God's battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. Wow. Hey, the army is still coming. Nothing has changed. The men, the women, and the children are standing there. And this guy whose name I keep forgetting for some reason right now, Jehaziel, has spoken and he says, it's not your battle, but tomorrow get up, climb up there and go face them. But this is God's battle. Watch what's going to happen. Now I want you to notice their response. Number five, the next word, next key word in our passage that captures it is the word praise. And so verse 18, and so King Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. And then some Levites from, from the Kohoahites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Young people, there's your biblical basis for loud worship right there. Crank it up. Praise the Lord loudly. There's the army. There's the dust. We're ready to die. God says it's his battle. He tells me not to worry. I'm just going to praise the Lord. Do they know the end of the story yet? They don't know anything. They just know the army's coming. And they know that their prophet told them, don't worry. Relax. In faith, believing that God was going to deliver them tomorrow morning, they begin to say, thank you, Lord, right now. Is the problem solved? The problem is not solved, other than the fact that the promise of God assures them that the solution is there. And they begin their thanksgiving and praise. Notice what happens. They praise the Lord with a very loud voice. Verse 20, early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said... Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. Remember, that sounds a lot like Joshua chapter 1 
when Joshua was trembling in his boots, when, Moses, when he had to take over from the great Moses, and the Lord said to Joshua, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, obey his word, and I'll be with you and you'll be victorious. So you just do this. You keep his word. You keep his word and you're going to be successful. You will be successful. After consulting the people, verse 21, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. I can't pass that one up without saying, there's our biblical basis for men to sing. Men sing. I want to tell you something. There's something powerful about men coming in opening their book, looking up at the screen, putting back their head, opening their mouth, and singing with great enthusiasm and volume. That the men of Fellowship Bible Church would sing to the Lord. It's one reason why we sing hymns, because they're singable. And you can get your head up and you can sing. And the men sing, not just the women. You're not a sissy if you sing. These guys aren't sissies. And Jehoshaphat appoints the men, begin to sing. What does that do to the moms and the, de- and the boys and the girls? What does that do to little children when they look up and they see their uncles and their granddad and their daddy singing with all their might to the Lord? I'll tell you what, you talk about what they catch and what they watch and what they learn by assimilation. That's teachable stuff right there when they grow up watching their dad sing to the Lord, you got to go home and live it out so that it's not scarred up, blind, lame sacrifices. Let's go on. So they're praising. Verse 21 again, After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, here's our thanksgiving message, Give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. Hey, where's the army? Where's the problem? It's right there. It's still there. This isn't over yet. They just know that God said... Go, sing. They're singing and praising the Lord, believing that the battle is the Lord, not theirs. This is an unbelievable moment. As they begin to sing and praise, as they begin to sing and praise, it's kind of like the priests back in Joshua, stepping into the water before it ever parted. They begin to sing and praise, verse 22, and the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon, And Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looks towards the vast army, they only saw dead bodies on the ground. No one had escaped. I don't know how it happened exactly. God moved. God did a miraculous movement. God gave him a backhand. I can picture it. God says, 
I want you to watch this. So that's why he says, I want you to march forward. I want you to get up there where you can see. They all get up there, down in the valley where they're coming across. And, and in the nature of the warfare at this time, they would have been foot soldiers by the tens of thousands. Their, their generals and their commanders would have marched these units throughout the night. This is the next morning. These men would have been marching all night long to get in position to come wipe out. They probably had not come out of encampment. They were marching all night. You got these guys that are crowded together in their units, totally fatigued, marching, knowing that they're getting ready for battle. And all of a sudden, off to the corner, off to the side, somebody starts to shout and scream and carry on. And evidently, it just swept through that army, a panic. They whip their swords out. They're looking, and they just start wailing. And in the fog and the fatigue and the craziness and the blindness that God put on them, they just whip out their swords, and they just start to slaughter each other. And there's just a, there's just a bloodbath. It's just like like some kind of self-flesh-eating cancer. It just eats itself. The army just ate itself up in a huge panic. And all God's people are watching. <gasps> Come here. And they just went crazy, and then one part of them got done killing each other, and then the other part, and then the other part came marching around, and they went in a panic, and they killed them. And it says all of them were dead. Number six is God's provision on the verse 25. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off the plunder and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka where they praised the Lord and this is why it is called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Baraka means to praise the Lord. Praise God's provision. We had a problem that was so great, we were in a panic. We turned in prayer to God. We reminded ourselves of a, with a renewed perspective of his power, of his presence. It brought his peace. He speaks his word through his prophet the word of the prophet is so powerful that this battle is God's, not my battle, that all I have left to do is just praise the Lord. And all the men are singing. They get up on high rocks and they watch the enemy destroy itself in front of them. They spend three days pulling out the plunder. God provides for them. They, they have to leave stuff. There's so much they can't even get it all. And the final thing is we ultimately experience God's peace. Then, verse 27, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. I guess so. I don't think you get over this one overnight. I think they, this, they, the town buzzed about this one for a long time. I think that all the songwriters wrote songs about it. I think that all the storytellers told stories about it. All the grandparents told their baby grandkids about it. There was cause for rejoicing. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. Verse 28, they entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. And the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace for his God had given him rest on every side. Number seven, the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your heart and mind stayed on him. Is that a great story or what? Is that a great story? 
So how do we apply it? God put it there to encourage us. He did. I can prove that biblically. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Psalm 74. You got a problem? You got a problem? Yeah, you do. There's a lot of problems. Now, I'll tell you something. I'm not talking about God taking up your battles when you are in sin and you are willfully disobeying him and you are creating a mess of your life, the first thing you have to stop to get out of that ditch is you got to stop digging. All right? But I am talking about problems that are greater than we are. I'm talking about trying to walk in obedience, getting ourselves into situations that we didn't see coming, knowing that we have problems that are unsolvable. So what are we going to do? Stress out, pull our hair out, cry, wail, throw things against the wall, bust the drywall? I can't cope. Listen, we're God's people. We are God's people. And He is a loving Heavenly Father. And He will fight our battles for us. I want to suggest really quickly just a couple lessons from this today, this story today. First of all, We need, based upon Jehoshaphat's story, we need to redefine the circumstances in which we give thanks. We need to redefine the circumstances in which we give thanks. What do I mean by that? Okay, here's a real one. Hey, honey, guess what? The IRS and the federal government is going to pay us $817 this year. Let's go to Outback and let's say hallelujah and praise God, right? That's a good thing. Anytime, as much taxes as we pay, the government will send you a check, that's good. Okay? Praise the Lord. How about this? Hey, honey, I don't know what we're going to do, but we owe 817 bucks. When do you praise the Lord? When do you praise the Lord? You're God's people. You have to redefine the circumstances. Well, I don't have $817. Well, Jehoshaphat didn't have any answers either. So I don't don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have a car to get to work. I don't know what you're going to do either, but Jehoshaphat didn't know either. So I suggest you stand still before the Lord, turn your face up, and you begin to pray. And then you wait for the deliverance of the Lord. I don't know how many times that I have felt stupid as a counselor saying to people, I don't know what you're going to do, but you better just wait on the Lord. I know that waiting stinks, but you better just wait and see what God does. But I don't like that answer. I want to know what to do. I want to know how to solve my problem. I don't know how to solve your problem. Your life is too messed up for me to solve your problem. Only God can come fight your battle for you. You better redefine your circumstances in which you're going to give praise. So you better get down on your face before the Lord and you better start praising God. The the dust of the enemy army is still there. It is not gone yet. It doesn't happen for another 24 hours. I don't know when God's going to relieve the stress, but you had better find new perspective in the presence and the power of God. Lesson number one, we have a need to redefine the circumstances in which we're going to give thanks. Not just the good days, but the bad days as well. Secondly, Praise redirects our attention from the circumstances to the presence of God. Let me say that again. The second lesson we get from Jehoshaphat is that when we praise the Lord, 
that works as a mechanism to redirect our attention from the advancing army to the face of God. Praise redirects our attention from the circumstances to the presence of God. You got a problem, one of the things you probably need to do is you need to stop obsessing on that problem. You probably need to stop spending 24 hours a day and half the night thinking, I got this problem, I got this problem, I got this problem. I don't know what I'm going to do with this problem. I got this problem. Oh, my problem's going to kill me. I got this problem, I got this problem. Yes, you have a problem. You got more than one problem. And you better get your eyes on the Lord and you better stop thinking about the problem and you better start asking God for a new perspective and on how he is going to solve this problem for you. You say, but that doesn't make sense. I already told you in this message, God's people don't make sense half the time. Now, let me clarify something. This is not a health and wealth gospel message, nor is it a poverty gospel. I'm going to tell you, you got this problem, and you're hungry, and you got potatoes in the ground out there. You go get your fork, and you dig potatoes, and you have fried potatoes for supper. All right? Don't walk around telling them about your problem when you haven't dug your potatoes. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when the problem is beyond your solution, beyond your resources. And if the problem is sin-induced, that's the time that you better get on your face before God and repent of that sin. And you ask God for a new beginning. And listen to this. The will of God for my life always starts brand new right now. The will of God for my life always starts brand new right now. Thirdly, we need to realize that praise and gratitude in God's people are an act of obedience. Praise, we need to realize that praise and gratitude in God's people are an act of obedience. Listen, it is a volitional, willful thing to praise the Lord and to thank the Lord. It is not feeling driven. 1 Thessalonians 4, Ephesians chapter 5 clearly say, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. We, are need, we need to be a grateful, thankful people out of obedience to our New Testament, out of obedience to, to the word of God that he's spoken to us. You can't wait until everything is right and then we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I want to tell you that I don't totally get this point and it might be helpful to break down into small groups right now and talk about it, close in prayer and then go home and watch football. But I'll tell you this. I don't know how you go home from the doctor and your liver's full of cancer and you say, praise the Lord. I don't think you say praise for the cancer itself, but we are commanded to be thankful and grateful and praise, praising people. I haven't quite put that all together. I just know I really want to be one of those kind of people. I just know that when I've been around those godly people who so trust their heavenly father and, and so much yield themselves over to the sovereign oversight of God that they are not stressed out people and their boats don't rock. And they just say, okay, Lord, how are you going to use this in my life today, Lord? Okay, Lord, new assignment. 
She's picking out caskets this week. Praise the Lord. I, I don't get that. That is totally weird. That is totally not normal human. You're right. That is all about God's people. That is all about turning to Him for renewed perspective. Right? And we redefine these circumstances. Well, may the Lord encourage your heart. May the Lord strengthen you as you struggle to grow in grace, to fight off the, the, the pressure of this world that we're God's people and we do things God's way. Let's pray. Uh, Let me be still just a moment. Why don't we just be still and you let the Spirit of God speak to you. Listen, Listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to you right now. What about your circumstances and so forth? Where's your focus? Where's your perspective? Where's the peace of God? So, Father, forgive us for being whining, complaining, grumbling ingrates. Forgive us for how the flesh dominates. How we talk about being seated in the heavenlies in Christ. We talk about having a power that is beyond this world and we live just like everybody else. Stressed out, anxious, full of worry. So Father, turn our faces towards you. Thank you so much for Jehoshaphat and how that day he got it together. And what a great story. What an awesome deliverance. Father, may we allow you to fight our battles for us. Father, help us to stop using our human logic and our rationalizations and help us to become a worshiping, praising men and women church before you and may we see you act in the midst of our praise and may it only elevate our joy and our praise as we see you answer prayer solve problems and deliver your needy people and we are a needy people we admit it so comfort encourage strengthen and may this be truly a week of thanksgiving for your people In Jesus' name I pray, amen.